Nisan Bulabinaka, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Go Okoroi Hawkins. Coming up... To reach out to some of the Pacific Island governments to explore how best we can support their work at COP27. Pacific climate activists are preparing to turn up the pressure, calling for global climate action in the lead-up to COP27. And... Filter feeding shellfish, uh, such as oysters, is uh, something which has been uh, very little done in this region, but has a huge potential... We hear how the humble Pacific mangrove oyster could hold the key to sustainable development for island communities. Pacific climate change stakeholders convened in Suva last week to solidify their plans to put pressure on the global community to take climate action ahead of the UN's annual climate change negotiations next month. A two-day Pacific Climate Justice Summit brought together key players in the region to consolidate their priorities in the lead-up to COP27 in Egypt from the 6th to the 18th of November. Pacific Islands Climate Action Network's Regional Policy Coordinator, Lavetana Langi Seru, says the event centred on the voice of the communities who are at the front line of the climate crisis. He says civil society groups are ready to support their governments at the Global Climate Conference to ensure the best outcomes are achieved for people living on the front lines of a worsening climate. He spoke to RNZ Pacific's regional correspondent, Kelvin Anthony, about the summit outcomes. It really centred the voice of climate-affected communities, centering the voice of grassroots communities who are at the front lines of the climate crisis, who often do not get the platform or the space at the regional level to highlight some of the real challenges that they are experiencing. And so the summit covers some of the key broad themes of loss and damage, climate mobility, so displacement and uh, relocation and migration. It also covers gender and social inclusion, oceans, adaptation, and, and, of course, climate finance. So will these be the key priorities for, for the region? For the civil society, these are some of the key priorities that have you know, emanated from our you know, series of consultation with members. And so from the summit discussions and also from the side event that we had, we've sort of drawn some of the key you know, uh, messages. We'll, and also, not only messages, but key recommendations, really, not only for COP27, but also for our Pacific Island government in how they can effectively advance climate justice with our, our local communities. So how do Pacific governments effectively enhance climate action with, with local communities? The, the recommendations that have come strongly from the two days, for instance, on, on loss and damage, there needs to be, you know, so you have this global-facing work around, you know, the call to establish a loss and damage finance facility, which communities are in support of, and also having loss and damage as a sort of a permanent standalone agenda item in future COP meetings. So uh, not only COP meetings, but the subsidiary body meetings uh, at the intersessionals. But there's also you know, a recognition that lo- there's not a lot of work that's done on the ground to sort of capture some of the, the impacts of climate-induced loss and damage in communities, whether that's related to culture and traditions or even issues like mental health, which is a non-economic loss and damage. There hasn't really much effort being done by our own governments in the Pacific to capture all that. So this is some 
recommendations that have come from the two days. And then you have uh, discussions around how do we make climate finance more accessible to the communities. So one of the challenges that communities are facing, civil society organizations we are grappling with is access to climate finance so that they're able to roll out climate adaptation project, climate resilience project that builds you know, community resilience, whether it's around food security or whether it's around looking at alternative livelihood sources for the community. This is something that the communities have highlighted that you know they do not have access to. Eh? Why is it the communities have difficulties accessing climate finance? This is something that come you know that I heard in uh, coming from the summit is the need to address access eh? both at national and local levels and, and perhaps a reform in the larger public climate finance architecture so that we can further enhance the flexibility, the openness and the speed of climate financing disbursement and that's really uh, one of the challenge that's limiting many grassroots communities and organizations from accessing climate finance. Right now it's just uh, national accredited organized entities that are accessing climate finance for instance from the the Green Climate Fund and other uh, bigger multilateral uh, banks and financial institutions that are providing climate finance but it hasn't really been made open or or flexible enough so that grassroots organizations can access even small grants. And so there's a need to, to reform that so that communities can directly apply for funding. One of the things that came from the summit was the their support for the establishment of the Pacific Resilience Facility that the Pacific Island Forum is setting up because then it's going to be a you know a dedicated funding pool that communities and civil society and other non-state uh, actors can reach out to. So I, I guess that's one of the, the challenges that's been highlighted in some of the recommendations. Oh, I understand that uh, that loss and damage which uh, Pacific Civil Society has been very vocal in terms of you know having a dedicated uh, finance facility for loss and damage and I understand that it is now on the COP27 agenda. You know it's great to hear that now it's made it to to the formal agenda of COP27 and I think that has been that's owing to the the work of civil society organizations across the world that has been putting pressure on uh, parties and head of delegate uh, head of delegations but also to you know AOCs the G77 uh, plus China that have been calling for loss and damage to you know to be part of the the formal agenda of COP. Loss and damage, you know, is an issue that the Pacific is already um, experiencing. You know, in era of loss and damage, we are seeing uh, multitudes of not only economic but also non-economic losses and damages um, taking place in our communities as a result of the warming uh, planet. And uh, we really need to, and it's also, you know, it's just a third pillar of um, the Paris Agreement and should be given that, you know, adequate attention, like adaptation and also mitigation. We hope that from COP27 that one of the key outcomes from that is not only the you know, the the scaling up and operationalization of the Santiago Network on Loss and Damage, but also that becomes a a permanent standalone uh, agenda item. So it's discussed in all future COPs and that there must be, uh, you know, we cannot continue in, you know, circles of conversations and and dialogue year in and year out um, during every COP. We need to come out with some practical action. And and one of the outcomes that we are calling for and we are hoping for is the establishment of a a finance facility on loss and damage that really 
will address some of the the issues and uh, the challenges that community frontline uh, climate affected communities are experiencing it must be separate from adaptation finance because it's not about adaptation this is about how do we continue to preserve our cultures and traditions in the face of you know the the climate crisis and really this is the litmus test of cop 27 oh, what are the plans now for the pacific civil society between now and and cop 27 we are now beginning to consolidate most of the the key demands the key asks so that we can now we're on our you know advocacy and communication strategy uh, we are working with a number of partners including uh, crop agencies to see how we can harmonize and how we can amplify and elevate these demands and issues at cop 27 the pacific civil society is also stands ready to support our governments in any way we can and so we've already you know begun to to reach out to some of the pacific island governments to explore how best we can support their work at cop 27 Pacific fisheries scientists and technical experts are eager to help island communities grow their aquaculture industries, saying they have the potential to deliver simultaneous benefits to regional economies and the environment. Gathered this week in New Caledonia to discuss and find solutions to the challenges facing coastal fisheries and aquaculture development in the region are fisheries experts, scientists, academics and industry stakeholders. Joining me from the Pacific's main regional scientific organization, the Pacific Community or SPC, is aquaculture advisor Tim Pickering. Kia ora Tim and welcome on Pacific Waves. Tell us more about the purpose of this week's meeting. Yes, yeah, certainly. This is the regional uh, technical meeting on coastal fisheries and aquaculture for all uh, scientists or those with scientific interest among our SPC membership uh, in uh, coastal fisheries and aquaculture. This is the fifth uh, in a series of meetings that started from 2017. Uh, and the purpose is to bring together all the coastal fisheries and aquaculture scientists in the region to discuss matters of importance to us, uh, in particular challenges and uh, opportunities in our field. We hear a lot about tuna. There's a lot of funding for tuna, coastal fisheries, uh, aquaculture. It's not. It's not a very well-funded area in the Pacific, is it? Despite, um, and that's not proportional to how important it is for food security to Pacific island countries. Yes, you're quite right. Historically, it hasn't had the prominence that it deserves. Uh, but uh, the mounting body of evidence uh, is that uh, when you look uh, not just at money earned, but money saved by having fish for food security available in our coastal waters and through aquaculture, uh, the values are not too terribly different between coastal fisheries and aquaculture in this region and uh, the tuna fisheries. Uh, it's just that there's a lot of uh, social and other things which are hard to value. But uh, the turnaround uh, came uh, starting from uh, the Uh, a report called the New Song on Coastal Fisheries, which led to a new regional architecture. Uh, previously, these issues didn't make it right to the top, but now a connection has been made from this meeting to the heads of fisheries uh, meetings, which is an annual meeting of all fisheries directors, who are mostly tuna people, I must say. And then from there, any issues uh, from our technical level, which they deem important uh, with policy implications, they can make decisions, or they can refer even higher up 
in the chain of the regional meetings architecture to the regional fisheries ministers meeting. So that gets it up to the political level. And uh, what's happened with coastal fisheries is it was deemed uh, sufficiently important to fisheries ministers that they have a mechanism to then refer specific issues uh, to the Pacific Islands Forum leaders uh, meeting, the, the annual event. And that happened in the case of coastal fisheries and aquaculture. It got referred to the uh, Forum leaders meeting. And the result is that it now is a standing agenda item for every annual uh, meeting of the Pacific Island leaders on coastal fisheries and aquaculture. So in the last five years, we've seen a, seen a turnaround, a big turnaround in the amount of attention and uh, the amount of resources being allocated uh, to trying to boost up this area of our very important marine resources. I'll come to aquaculture in a second, but with coastal fisheries, how what are the issues here? What are, what are the important issues um, being considered, being looked at? What are the challenges that need addressing? Well, the, the challenges for this particular meeting, uh, we established by uh, having a survey of our members and asking them to identify their two top issues. And from that, we uh, we construct an agenda. And the main uh, issues of concern to our members in the technical area for this meeting is uh, firstly, changing behaviour through monitoring con control surveillance and education or MCSNE in fisheries and aquaculture. Secondly, there are some species such as sea cucumbers are now being covered by the uh, Convention on uh, Trade and Endangered Species or CITES. And there's a lot of scientific needs to come up with non-detriment findings, which our members uh, lack capacity to comply with. So uh, we need to respond to the increased scientific demands of managing sea cucumber fisheries. Uh, thirdly, uh, we are developing a regional aquaculture strategy, which in the post-COVID era is going to guide our general regional direction for the next 10 years, uh, picking up in particular on things like restorative or extractive or uh, unfed aquaculture, or aquaculture that is what we call nature positive. The fourth uh, issue we're going to home in on is um, aquatic biosecurity, uh, because the, a lot of countries feel under pressure to introduce species for aquaculture because we lack um, good uh, domesticated varieties of the common aquaculture commodities like uh, shrimp and prawns and so forth. So aquatic biosecurity capacity is uh, a key theme which is running through the work that we're doing. and. Now we're boosting that up. And lastly, uh, we've developed a lot of new tools and apps uh, for the very vexed question of data collection and uh, and storage, uh, which will assist fisheries and aquaculture science. And we're going to demo these tools and apps uh, in the session on the third day of this meeting. Now, for for aquaculture, would it be fair to say it's it's still a budding industry for the Pacific? It's not it's not something that's widespread uh, at any commercial sort of level. There's been very widespread in our efforts to try and get meaningful aquaculture industries going, uh, but the outcome of our regional aquaculture assessment that we completed earlier this year is that uh, it's fallen short of the uh, promise and often for reasons which fall out of the technical sphere. But uh, the, our members are convinced that there is still a lot of untapped potential that we can get from aquaculture, and uh, that's the uh, the rationale driving this development of a regional aquaculture strategy is to really identify what are the low-hanging fruit, review the, the lessons that are being learned, and do some targeted interventions which are going to uh, open up some new possibilities. And already we've identified some uh, very good candidates for that. In particular, filter feeding shellfish, uh, such as oysters, is uh, something which has been uh, very little done in this region, but has a huge potential. Uh, but there's always been 
a, a couple of constraints. Uh, one is in hatchery capacity, uh, which we lack compared to Australia and New Zealand. And the other is uh, systems for uh, food safety and quality assurance, uh, which the Pacific Island countries also lack compared to Australia and New Zealand. But through te uh, technology transfer and by focusing on these particular species, we can capitalize on these opportunities and we can get a lot more tonnage and value out of our waters. Is is market access much of a problem for aquaculture? Well, in the example I just mentioned for filter feeding shellfish, market access is absolutely a problem because without quality assurance and food safety, you cannot uh, access much markets at all except at a very localised level. So that would be the key to it. And that comes through the aquatic biosecurity of putting in the, the food safety assurance programs. So that's just uh, one example. Uh, market access has all been uh, tricky for us because of reasons of distance, uh, but we have pockets uh, of higher domestic demand, particularly where there are tourism industries, for example, example, Fiji's heading for a million visitors uh, in the next year or so. So uh, we, there are, we call tourism uh, hidden exports because people pay their ticket to come fly here and eat our local seafood. There's always, I, I feel, and correct me if I'm wrong here, almost, a, a, I wouldn't say a battle, but a, there's also sort of a, a fine line between environmental conservation efforts and maximizing resource use and income and food security for Pacific Islanders in this space, in the coastal fishery space. Is is, is that something that you, you come across? Because I, I have worked with um, some local fisheries agencies and that and covering stories in that. And there's always sort of arguments within, even within departments of conservation versus getting our people enough food and money and, re and being able to use the resources that they own for improving their lives. Historically, there's always been this tension between environment and development, uh, but there are workarounds and there are ways through it. And this is what's uh, where we've come up with internationally, globally, with the concept of restorative aquaculture or nature-positive aquaculture, because there are forms of aquaculture which actually improve the environment. So uh, it's not really there are. We, what we want to do is to highlight cases where, rather than having to choose between environment and development, uh, like in the Iron Man movie, we say why not have both? Because um, if you have a filter-feeding mollusk. Uh, dangling on long lines, uh, they don't have to be fed, so nothing is polluting into the water. They actually extract their food from the water by themselves, which helps to combat eutrophication of coastal waters. The farms themselves provide habitat, and examples we've uh, piloted here in, in Fiji, for example, show that you get more finfish uh, abundance around these farms, and then you get bonuses of other species settling on them, uh, such as uh, sea grapes or seaweed, which is very popular locally. There was none in the area we did a demo farm and now this farm is also covered with sea grapes as, uh, as well as the, the oysters. Uh, it's a, f a form of agriculture which is more equitable, it's accessible to women and youth, uh, it's close by the village and it provides them with a local food security and alternative food sources as well as a means of livelihood. So this all ticks a lot of boxes and without cost to the environment. So these are the kinds of uh, options that we need to explore and ramp up. If it was easy, it would have happened long ago. Uh, there are constraints, but uh, our job now is to pinpoint those constraints and address them uh, with the march of progress in technology. And as I mentioned, with the uh, filter feeding shellfish, the two constraints are hatchery capacity and uh, food quality assurance. And there are systems in place in Australia and New Zealand. We can uh, um, just do a transfer and adopt them locally. Are we, to, are we talking mostly oysters? And are there are they are these oysters that are I guess endemic to Pacific? Or are they are they oysters yes, that are available? Yes, it's a rock oyster. 
We call it mangrove oyster. It's uh, indigenous to the Pacific. It uh, grows on the roots of mangrove uh, plants. But if you uh, put the spat catching materials in the water, they will hang on to that, and then you can transfer them to baskets, and you can grow them the same way as the oysters are done in Northland and New Zealand or the Sydney rock oyster. So it's an indigenous oyster, uh, and it grows traditionally on mangroves and is a part of the local diet. I use that as just one example. Others are seaweeds, uh, for example. And uh, sea cucumber is another one. It's a detritivore. It gets its own food out of the seabed. So doing releases of uh, sea cucumber uh, also helps uh, to improve the reef as well as provide a crop. And uh, what the other way in which it combines with the uh, environment is that when you do the small-scale aquaculture it, uh, successfully at a community level, it provides uh, an alternative sustainable livelihood, which then incentivizes. Uh, it provides incentives for the creation of marine protected areas because any marine protected area community uh, created at a community level represents a loss of income uh, but if you can stock those areas with uh, giant clams or sea cucumber uh, or other species uh, then people get into protective mode and they want to defend those and it does incentivize uh, the declaration of MPAs by communities and we've seen this happen in Fiji and Tonga and Solomon Islands uh, in Vanuatu. So uh, this is, uh, again, we combine the aquaculture uh, with fisheries, uh, community-based fisheries management or CBFM. Now, going back to the conference, uh, what, what are the, what happens from the, the meetings that are happening this week and what are the outcomes and where are they going? Well, a key thing I haven't mentioned yet is we're having a community-based fisheries dialogue. Uh, this is a meeting within a meeting where civic society actors and non-state organizations uh, who have uh, strong interests in coastal fisheries and aquaculture, they're going to convene independently and uh, form their own uh, non-government views. And there's a channel for them to forward their recommendations into this meeting, the Regional Technical Meeting on Coastal Fisheries and Aquaculture. And anything that, which carries great weight can then be carried forward right up to the top political level, depending on the seriousness of the issue. So we are holding a meeting within a meeting for non-state organizations and civic society. Uh, but then the meeting as a whole will take their recommendations, plus our own, uh, because we are government scientists for the large part, uh, plus other institutions like educational universities and such. Uh, we, we provide guidance on technical matters to our members through our outcomes document. And there is a section of the outcomes document which highlights issues which should be carried forward up to the policy level through the next heads of fisheries meeting. And if they consider it to have enough weight, it can go even further up to the regional fisheries ministers meeting or even to Pacific leaders themselves. So that's the uh, the river of uh, uh, information and, and recommendations which which start from here. Thank you so much for your time. All the best for your meetings and deliberations, and I hope great things come from that. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Yeah, it's been um... to talk to you. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas.